Right, I still need to find Acts chapter 17. So it's going to read from verse 1 as we find out about what happened in Thessalonica. When Paul and his companions uh, had passed through Amphipolis and opponent, I should have practiced the place name, shouldn't I? And this other place, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, uh, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, I am proclaiming to you, is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So for some time, uh, we've in, been in the, the book of Acts, and recently we've seen how um, the, the spread of the gospel and the ministry of the Apostle Paul and his companions have taken a new turn. It's a somewhat mysterious, really. We don't know precisely how this happened, but we know from chapter 16 that somehow or another the Holy Spirit seemed to prevent them going to lots of places like Bithynia uh, and into the province of Asia that must have puzzled and perplexed them somewhat. But then the Holy Spirit makes it clear through a, a, a kind of visionary dream this man of Macedonia presents himself to them and says, come, come and help us. And so they take that as the Lord's leaning, leading. Um, and so, you know, they kind of like, having crossed through plan A and plan B and plan C, they realize the Holy Spirit was with plan D all along, and they head to Macedonia. This is the, the gospel breaking into new territory, and that means actually coming into Europe. Um, and we see some of how the adventure uh, took shape in Philippi, and now having moved on from Philippi, Paul and Silas have travelled through a few places uh, to get to the next kind of major city they plan to spend some time in, uh, which is Thessalonica, about 90 miles or so uh, from where we last saw them in Philippi. So, you know, just a two-hour drive, um, probably, I guess, a two-day walk, who knows if they had horses to help them. So here they are, in a new place, we are witnessing the, the ongoing spread of the gospel. These, these witnesses of Jesus are where the Holy Spirit wants them to be. Um, sometimes I wonder if we, if we think in those terms, I, I, you know, I'm right, you know, God, God is really with us. God is really among us. I wonder what we have in mind. What will be the fruit? What will be the evidence of God being among us? And it could be, well, if God is with us, if, God's really, if we're really in line with God's will and his plan and purpose, if we've really listened, uh, as Faye encouraged us earlier on, if we've really listened to his will for our lives, if we're really going for God, passionate and zealous, on track, what will the fruit be? What will, what will be the evidence? What will be the result? And it's easy then at that point to just assume everything more or less, will be rosy. Blessing and glory will just follow us all the days of our 
uh, of our lives. Um, what we see, in fact, is, is that if God is, is with us, yes, there will be blessing, there will be fruit, there will be glory, there will be new growth, there will be adventure, there will be new life, there will be people giving themselves to uh, the Saviour, and there will be opposition, there will be pain, and there will be toil and turmoil and turbulence. So apparently, 13-year-old Joseph is on a plane over the Atlantic, heading to some holiday destination. It will be a blessed time. Um, but you know, I guess, heading over the Atlantic, on a plane, now and again, it's more than likely, distinctly possible, that they will encounter some turbulence. If you've been on a flight, you've probably known that yourself. The, the, the plane can just appear to be just effortlessly progressing to its destination, but then there's, there's a, these massive wobbles every now and again. The, uh, the, the lights come on to say, kind of fasten your seatbelts for a while. This could get a little bit interesting. Who likes going on holiday? Yeah. Who like, not, I know not everyone would like this, who likes flying? Yeah. Who likes adventure? Yeah. Who likes turbulence? Yeah? Put your hands in the air if you want to go faster. I'm just there. Um, no one likes turbulence, really, apart from Ben, for some reason. A, bum, a bumpy ride. Who likes a bumpy ride? Oh, sir, madam, just step right this way. It's the finest model we've got in the showroom. Suspension's rubbish. Every pothole. Oof, you, just, you know about it. If we're going for God, and if we're in step with the Holy Spirit, and if we're eager for new adventures that he leads us into, we don't like opposition. We don't like turmoil. We don't like turbulence. But it's kind of the price to pay for being in the will of God. And it sometimes happens. What happened in Philippi? A new adventure. There are new believers. There are people encountering God. There's Lydia, there's the jailer and his family. Maybe this slave girl who just got released from demonic oppression is part of this new community of faith. You could say to Paul, aren't you glad you went? Isn't it wonderful what's happened? Well, they did spend the night in the stocks, in a prison. I don't know how much... Did they leave with an almighty spring in their step when they moved on to the, the next place? It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2... And verse 1, Paul writing says, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. I love what happens in Philippi. All the good stuff. But it's not entirely straightforward. And we're going to see similar events in Thessalonica as well. It seems like Luke especially draws attention to the turmoil. Uh, Thessalonica, just, you get these few verses and then it's kind of twinned with or it's matched by what happens in Berea. We'll hear about that next time. And overall, what happened in Berea seems to be a bit more positive, And what happened in Thessalonica seems to be a bit harder. There's still fruit in Thessalonica. You know, what, what do we really believe? You know, if I, this morning, if my family and I had arrived at the Jubilee Center in our golden private helicopter, and I was wearing one of several white suits that I keep in my wardrobe, and I started to tell you, you give your life to Jesus, you're going to be rich beyond your wildest dreams. Your life here on planet Earth is just going to be effortlessly glorious. Blessings going to follow you all the days of your life. And that's at some point, I hope, you might, be, you might begin just to be a bit suspicious and wary. What has happened to Dan? And what on earth is he going on about? Of course, there's blessing for giving your life to Jesus. 
but you'd start to think that I've just been infected by the prosperity gospel, the, the, the notion that really Jesus' main aim is making us rich and wealthy and comfortable. Clearly, I hope you're clear on this, clearly it isn't. But there can just be ways in which we don't believe in the golden helicopter and the white suit and the promise that everything will be well, but we still just, we've maybe just slightly taken the message on. We can seek the kingdom, we can build the church, we can live for Jesus, and basically everything will be comfortable. Everything, that the hallmark of our godly zeal will be, we're basically comfortable, and it's easy, and it's effortless. I want to show you this turmoil in Thessalonica and how it can shape us and perhaps how it shapes that, that church. It starts in this way. It starts by Paul choosing to continue to proclaim Jesus as the one and only Savior, the one and only Messiah. That's that's where this adventure uh, takes off. That's the launch pad. That's the unchanging message. Wherever he went and, and, and whoever he met, this was the one thing he kept on harping on about, his singular, passionate obsession with Jesus. Nothing else, him. Undimmed passion to proclaim Jesus. Even with all the trials and tribulations, he dared to share Jesus when he got to Thessalonica. It says, as was his custom, in verse 2, Paul went into the synagogue. That can just make it sound incredibly matter-of-fact, like he was just going through the motions, doing the usual, trotting out the same old tired sermon. No, as was his custom, he put his life on the line and was passionate to share Jesus. And we see that deliberate approach. It sometimes takes him to different places. Here we're seeing him, typically what he did was start in the synagogue. Start with the Jewish community. Start with people with whom he had a lot of common ground, actually. Who, people who believed in God. People who held to the scriptures, wanted to honor the scriptures. And people who were in the habit of meeting together um, he goes there to start with. Obviously, we'll see other occasions when he shares the same message tailored to a different audience, and he'll go to the marketplace. But he's, his message is the same. He wants to present Jesus. He wants to present and he wants to explain uh, Jesus, well, two key things about him. His suffering, his death, and why that was absolutely essential and his resurrection, and that he rose to new life. So he takes three Sabbaths, we're told, to reason with, uh, with them, explaining and proving that Jesus is the Messiah. He's doing, actually, what Jesus himself had done at the end of Luke's Gospel in Luke uh, chapter 24 and verse 44. The risen Jesus spending time with his disciples, um, so he, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. goes on to say, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. That's what Jesus has done. Taken people with a Jewish background and taken them through all the scriptures, and for Jesus, he could say, and this is how they're all fulfilled in me. And here's how the scriptures point to the fact that I had to suffer, and here's how the scripture points to the fact that I would rise again. And here's the good news in my name, through repentance, you get forgiveness and a life with God. 
that had been Jesus' message. Paul is doing exactly the same, apart from he's not saying it's about me. He's saying it's about him. These script, everything points to Jesus. How essential it was for him to die and rise again so that all of us, by believing in him, can receive forgiveness, eternal life, a new life, a brand new life that would last into eternity. Do you ever kind of wonder? I wonder what scriptures. I wonder where we might turn. And uh, we could go to so many places. And it, the, the good news was there all along. I suppose like so many uh, of the Jewish people at the time expecting a Messiah, they had latched on to the hope in this messianic figure being the, the all-conquering hero. Maybe he would come down from a helicopter, be really well presented, and like just dish out loads of spectacular things. But of course he did spectacular things. But he came in utter humility. He came in weakness, and he came to die. And that message was always there, but it jarred with the expectations that just wants the glory, just wants the power. I wonder if one of the places that Paul uh, may have turned to was the book of Isaiah, where through the latter chapters, you, you see this figure emerge, the servant of the Lord. Isaiah had seen many different come, uh, kings come and go and knew that kind of judgment was resting on the nation. The nation was like a tree that had just been completely chopped down. All hope waned. The, they had this great call of God to be a light to the world around them, but they struggled and they had failed. And yet Isaiah can point out there's one coming, there's a servant coming. The king will serve. And you get to chapter, well, the end of chapter 52 and into chapter 53, and you learn about what this servant will be like. You see that he will suffer. Isaiah can write, who's believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Because perhaps it's not going to be obvious to everyone. Looking for the great ruler. Looking for the all-conquering hero. Looking for the white suit. But he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. In verse 2, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. I mean, isn't that exactly what happened? Jesus takes up the cross. Uh, women on the way are just weeping for him. Disciples nowhere to be seen, even his friends. Just hide your face. This is awful. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Let's just go through it. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are he healed. There's this servant to come, and his destiny is to suffer. And he's going to suffer to serve us as a substitute. It goes on, it becomes clear he's not suffering because of his own sin. There's no deceit in his mouth. There's no violence in him. There's nothing that he's done. Unholy or untrue. And then we learn that it's not just evil people having their way, but somehow God himself has chosen for him to suffer. God himself is going to make his life a sin offering. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave 
with the wicked and with the rich in his death. So his suffering is going to lead to his death. Somehow his death is going to become good news. And it's going to become good news because he's going to be able to justify people because he is able to take our transgression on himself and die in our place. And then you get this other note coming through, not just his suffering, but somehow, mysteriously, bizarrely even, his suffering isn't going to be the end of the story. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, well, we've just seen that his suffering is going to involve death. But after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Suffering servant, he's going to die and he's going to see life again. And that's how God's blessing is going to come to the world. I could well imagine that Paul's going through that, not just on one week, but week after week in that, in that synagogue and say, do you see it? Look, it's been there in our scriptures all along. Now... Now that we've seen from the Bible that the Messiah, who is a suffering servant, a king, but a humble one, has to suffer and rise again. Now let me show you Jesus. And for Paul, this would be in its living memory. It's, maybe the news hasn't traveled throughout, but let me tell you about someone called Jesus who would suffer and who would be sinless who wouldn't cry out, who would go like that lamb went to the slaughter. He could have spoken back to Pilate. He could have answered the accusations, but he went silently. Why? Well, because he was cooperating with the Father's plan that this was the only way for us to be saved. This is the only way for anyone on planet Earth to come into fellowship with God. It had to happen. So we heard about Gethsemane and Jesus praying in the garden. If there is any other way, take this cup from me. So we learn through his prayers, the Son of God, who has only ever lived to please his heavenly Father, and has experienced the pleasure, the voice of Almighty God just saying, you're my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Son, there's no other way. And so God himself would be hung and would be killed. He would become sin. So that we might become righteous. And so I think Paul, his passion is making Jesus known. He's not, he's not just like going on a big holiday around Europe. He's not got the grumps and he's just trying to pick a fight with people he disagrees with. He wants people to meet Jesus. There's no other way. And there is no other way for you and me to come into relationship with God. To try and be a good person, to try and be good enough for God, is like a tree trying to bear fruit when it has already died and been chopped down. And it's just like a log in the store waiting to be thrown onto the fire. You speak to that log and you can say, come on, you can do it, I'm sure you can. You just try a little bit harder. You know, if you, if you pray a little bit more, if you, if you just Put the work in, I know, turn over a new leaf. Go to church, read your Bible, we say, to the dead log that's chopped up. There's no, there's no hope for that log, unless God does something new. There's, there's no hope in just being a good person, in trying to turn over a new leaf. There's no way to life without acknowledging 
I am lost and dead without you, Jesus. And you see from the stump of this thing that's been, the tree that's been chopped down, Isaiah will see, look, there's just a little shoot coming up. That's your only hope, that. Jesus grew up like a tender shoot. This new branch comes out of the stump. That is your only hope. And do you know what God can do with you then? The dead branch waiting to be burned as kindling, you can pick that up and the living God can actually pick up that branch and kind of graft you into Jesus. You've got no hope by yourself, mate, but I can graft, look, I can, you can have life by being grafted into Jesus. That's the message. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the saviour of the world. He can bring life to dead people. Why? Because he suffered and died in our place. That's what was going down in the synagogue. And Paul, he's not just... He wants people to be deeply convinced, utterly persuaded. Praise God, that's what happens. Verse 4, some of the people were persuaded. Which doesn't mean they just had their arms twisted. Uh, okay, it sounds interesting. I'll, I'll go along with that. Look how, again, Paul puts it to, uh, to them later in his letter. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, verse 4, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words. Words were involved. Paul used some words, quite a few probably. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. They haven't had their arms twisted. They are fully persuaded, utterly convinced to the core of their being. Jesus is the Messiah. And that good news kind of just thoroughly gets into them and then really it starts straight away to to change them. Note how they weren't just persuaded and then say, thank you, Paul, that's really interesting. What we're going to do is kind of incorporate that into our services now. This new information you've given us, we're going to just try and and kind of bring that in, just kind of season our normal life. I mean, you do understand, Paul, nothing much is going to change, but thanks for sharing anyway. Um, We'll we'll kind of remember just to take a pinch of Jesus every now and again into what we already decided we're going to do. It says that they were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. That's it. That, that's, that's total commitment. That's like, I'll, I'll lose anything. To gain this treasure, I don't mind what I lose. Right, following Jesus, it requires this change of life. It requires totally going for him. It means not kind of sprinkling Jesus into my life. It means my whole life changes. It means I can't just keep doing what I decided to do previously uh, on the morning of the Sabbath. It's, it's, now, I've got to go and be part of this new thing. Who knows what will come of us? Who knows what people will think of us? But actually, we're going to leave the synagogue now. And we're going to become part of this new community. And it's not just joining a movement with a flashy logo. Uh, it's, not, it's not like that. They joined Paul and Silas. It's personal. It's relational. It means for us, we, it's impossible, I think, to be totally going for Jesus and indifferent about the church. It's just not how it works. It's impossible. I, I don't dare you to try this because it won't work well. Living for Jesus means I'm totally invested in the, in the new community that is formed by being with other believers in Jesus. I don't know what the world will think of us, but this is where we're going to build our life. In the church. 
not as the world sees it, but as God wants it to be. We're not looking to squeeze Jesus in. We're not just looking to kind of be on the fringe of a group, but totally in. I wonder if that's kind of normal now. There seems to be so many stories, so many sad stories of leaders abusing their authority. Um, just every month seems to go by with kind of more tales of woe. Don't have to deny that they're there. But it can start to present an idea. Yeah, I'll be passionate for Jesus, but I'll kind of just be part of, a, part of this group. I don't want to be too involved because, you know, you could get hurt. Um, uh, I like my friends, but I'm not sure I trust the leaders. It, that kind of wariness, you can't build church like that. And, you, and the church can't take the gospel to the world on like a bunch of Christians just being wary with each other. But being genuinely united. Now that's the good stuff. That's the adventure. The adventure of proclaiming Jesus and building church. But your notes, the turmoil. Because as well as seeing Paul proclaiming Jesus, we see the effect of this is, is provoking jealousy. Verse 5. Verse 4, we've seen that some have responded. Note that it's not just kind of one sector of the group, if you like. There are men and women. There are, there are Jews. There are God-fearing Greeks that are drawn, that are attracted, that are saved by believing in Jesus. But it says... Other Jews were jealous. And again, we could just be a bit naive and think that if we're really going for God, that, that won't really happen. We understand that people might be kind of neutral to the gospel, neutral about Jesus, not really sure. If they hear, if they're convinced, they'll become positive. They're like totally in. And, and then just try and overlook the fact that sometimes... From that neutral position, hearing about Jesus, it actually has the opposite effect. And people go, I don't know why the negative side should be over here on my left and your right. Sorry about that. Um, there are others who are just, they don't, stay, they don't stay neutral. We can have this idea that sharing Jesus will get some people to believe and other people will just smile and move on and let, let us be. No, it provokes jealousy. Strange word. Because sometimes it's just, it's just it's speaking of a strong desire. Do you want to know where that word also crops up? Um, Paul will write elsewhere, eagerly desire. Eagerly desire the greater gifts. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire. It's talking about strong passion. That's where the word is used positively. Be eager, be jealous for gifts of the Spirit. That's, it's fine to be zealous, just as long as the purpose is good, you'll write somewhere else. Strong desire. And again, we can live almost with an idea of Christianity that every desire has to just be kind of muted into kind of bland indifference. Now, don't be blandly indifferent about the things that God says to pursue really eagerly. But this isn't the positive version, if you like, of that strong desire. Go back to Acts chapter 7 and verse 9. In preaching there, Stephen says, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, way up there in his plane, celebrating his 13th birthday, no sorry, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. So what was going on for Joseph's brothers, the, the rest of the patriarchs? They were, they were jealous. They had a strong desire. That strong desire was to get rid of Joseph because he seemed to them just to be an arrogant upstart. Can you see how, how sad that is? If, if that jealousy strong desire in the human heart, just, if that's what grows up, see the evil that comes. Think of how much evil has happened on the planet, probably when someone thinks they're doing the right thing. Maybe even someone thinks they have good intentions. But just note the, the evil of the human heart. 
good intentions, so kind of designed, if you like, or kind of imagined, good intentions plus that little bit of pride that's there just leads to utter evil. These people in the synagogue who decide not to believe must think that they're doing the right thing. They must think that they're doing what's necessary for the well-being of the community that they're a part of. But really, it's coming from selfish pride, jealousy. What, what are they strongly desiring? If not maybe their own security, their own honor in the community, their own influence, maybe it's about wealth. There's going to be fewer people in the synagogue. Not many people will be giving. Things are going to look bad for us. This exciting new thing is happening in town, and we're not part of it, so we're going to lose out. And then they, they must change gear at some point from, is what Paul's saying actually true, to, it doesn't matter if what he says is true. We've got to stamp it out now. And then these seemingly respectable people who could rock up on the Sabbath in a synagogue every week are now going out into the marketplace not to try and reach men, not to try and draw them to God, just to use them. Find some bad characters, form a mob, start a riot, and then have the audacity to go to the city officials and blame Paul and Silas for the riot that they themselves have just started. Now, it's all right, because the ends justify the means, they would have said. Yeah, the idea that, that living a gospel life will always lead to some peaceful, calm vibe just simply doesn't account, well, for the work of Satan, for one, who wants to oppose the work of God, and the utter sinfulness of the human heart. Sometimes, when our pride is damaged, we can do daft things. Sometimes, when we feel defensive, we actually get a little bit aggressive. If our good intentions just mix in with a bit of jealousy and envy, the only result will be evil. And that's why, to come into God's kingdom, the, the, only, the, the only way is Jesus, and therefore, for us, the only way is laying down our lives completely. I don't matter. The old me dies with Jesus. I'm not trying to build my kingdom. My profile is unimportant. The world will tell you to celebrate pride. The world will tell us, make sure your voice is heard. The world will tell us, express yourself. Be whoever you want to be. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will say, you need to die. And you need to give your life to God. And you need to humble yourself. And we need to repent completely from all sin. Damaged pride. Do you know the solution to damaged pride? Finish pride off. Cut off its head. Don't leave it damaged. Kill it completely. Because the only way to please God is with humility. We could go to, uh, to 1 Peter, if I can find it. 1 Peter chapter 5. And partway through verse 5. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. I, can be, I, I could have the greatest intentions. I could think, I'm about your business, O oh God. But if there's any pride nursed in my heart, God will just put up his hand and say, no. Dan, you're not coming any further with that. That's not of my kingdom. You can't be about my work and your own reputation. It's just, it's not on. I'm opposing you. Because you're proud. But the promise is that he shows favour, he shows grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him. The gospel provokes 
that jealous response. And in a, world, in a way, in, a, in the world, it can't, that, that provocation can't be avoided. Because the gospel just jabs at us and says, your only hope is Jesus. You cannot save yourself. Human flesh doesn't like that idea. We want, we want to be congratulated. We want to be esteemed. We want to be admired. We want the helicopter and the gold suit. Well, we, I don't, actually, I don't think any of us want that. It provokes... Jealousy. Do you still want to live for Jesus? You still, we, we still want the, the adventures, don't we? We still want to follow him. Well, let's see how, lastly, let's just see how it worked out for Jason. This is the point where every Jason can go, yes, I have a biblical name. This is where we hear about Jason and what happened. So the, the, the riot forms... And bad characters plus jealous people rush to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king one called Jesus. And it's strange, but it's kind of half true what they're saying. They are turning the world upside down wherever they go. And their chief object is not to defy Caesar, but in holding up that there is Jesus, there is a clash of culture. And the culture just worked by making sure that whatever Caesar said and whatever Caesar did, you kind of went with that. And you could do and worship whatever you wanted to, but you kind of had to worship Caesar at the same time. So there's this clash of cultures. In a way, the accusations were true. But you've got to feel for Jason, haven't you? I think. Where, where are Paul and Silas? They've been stirring up the trouble. The kind of thing, well, maybe, maybe they should be taking the heat. I just responded last weekend. What do you mean? As they kind of drag him off to the city officials. You were with him. What? I don't even... No, his second name. I just want that could seem that could seem unkind, that could seem unfair. You could almost read that and think, Paul and Silas, wherever you are, just step up right now. Take the heat for Jason. But they don't. And just pondering that, I just I just wondered, can't prove it. Maybe that's just God's kindness to Paul and Silas in particular. You know, in the last place, guys, you had to go to prison, get beaten up, and spend the night with your feet in the stocks. This time, I'm just going to protect you in a different way. There's only so much that a person can take. And so God knew that at this time, Paul and Silas just needed to be sheltered. I don't know if that's the case for anyone else, anyone else ever identify with that. I know it's probably not the same for us. It's not necessarily about imprisonment and beatings, but when you just kind of think, do you know what? Whew, there's just a heck of a lot going on. And I think I would just guess that there are stories in this room. You know what? God just sheltered us. God protect. I don't know how he did it really, but we were just kept apart from the fray for a moment there. And I wonder if that's what God is doing for Paul and Silas, but not this time for Jason. And we might wonder, why is Jason there? I think Jason is there, maybe just to help us locate ourselves in the story. Jason's just an ordinary bloke who happened to hear the apostle to the Gentiles, share the good news of Jesus. The Spirit of God worked powerfully in Jason's life and he gave himself to God. And he said yes to the adventure of faith and he didn't know what it would cost him, but he decided to follow anyway. And he plucked up the courage to follow the apostles and he left the synagogue and he joined this new thing called the church. 
Who knows how it's going to work out? But he kind of finds himself leading the thing. And then there's the knock at the door, and he gets dragged before the city officials. He is guilty by association. You've welcomed the... These guys make trouble. You've welcomed them into your house. The result is not imprisonment and beating. It looks like, having been dragged before the city officials, somehow he needs to pay some money. If you hand over this money, pay bail, we'll let you go. You kind of have to promise not to let Paul back into this town. And so he's got to work that one out. But he's guilty by association. Are you prepared in the adventure of faith to be guilty by association? Do you welcome the Apostle Paul into your house? Do you care about what he said? Are you working out your identity in God through what Paul wrote in the New Testament? Could you hear Paul say, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. You've become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now honour God with your body. Everything he's written, everything God has given us through the scripture penned by Paul, a gift to us to help us work out and live the faith. And yet increasingly, uh, possibly, the very apostle to the Gentiles is unwelcome. Too controversial. Just a man of his time, out of touch with this modern era. I mean, have you heard what he said to husbands and wives? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the household, as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Are you, do you welcome the Apostle Paul into your home? When he says... He who marries the virgin does well, but he who does not marry the virgin does even better. One has this gift, another, have that, another has that gift. I wish that all of you were as I am, huh? unmarried. Do you welcome the Apostle Paul into your life? Because in so many ways, in this day and age, we're going to be tempted, or the culture will just want us to dis... Imagine that Jason just disowned him at that point. So I don't know what you mean, never met the man. I mean, when has that happened before? We're guilty by association. There might be times when it costs us. Not as much as it cost Paul and Silas. There's only so much that one person can bear in one lifetime. But proclaiming Jesus and living for him will cost and sometimes will hurt and will involve ridicule. Are you in? Are you up for the adventure of faith in the church of Jesus? When there is turbulence and turmoil. It's not, it's not ultimately what we're about. It's not ultimately what we're seeking. And we're not trying to kind of pick a fight with the world, but we do want to present to the world the Messiah. And to do that will get uncomfortable. Probably already is. That's the challenge. If we want the adventure, we're going to have to experience the turbulence. Are you ready? Are we ready? That's what God calls us on. And God has given us the book of Acts so we can see time and again in lots of different places what the adventure looks like. Be like Jason who nailed his colours to the mast and would rather lose money and be part of what God is doing than just imagine that we can live for Jesus and never take any heat whatsoever. It, this is calling us on. The book of Acts is calling us on. 
where the stakes are really high, the fruit will be really massive. We need to be ready to support one another. We need to be ready to build church. Where it's not just that a culture is neutral about church, it's where a culture is negative about church. And there are no mobs at the door. You might think I'm being alarmist. I just think it's time to be utterly ready. And it comes back to the beginning. Uh, to be utterly ready, got to be utterly convinced. My hope is in Jesus alone. No one else, nothing else, not popularity, not reputation, not qualifications, not money, not a house, not anything this world can offer. I, I bet it all on Jesus. And I will follow him until I die and then forever. Amen? Let's pray. Oh Lord God, help us not just to... Help us receive your word, God. Help us draw near to Jesus. Help us, Lord, those who know that Jesus is our one and only treasure. Those of us who know something of what fellowship with God Almighty is like, who know something of gifts of the Spirit, who know something of sharing their faith. To not swerve out of the way. But like Paul, to know the joy of the Lord, even at the points where we also know turmoil and difficulty. Help us, O oh God. I pray, Lord Jesus, just build your church, build your kingdom. Lord, we pray for this city and we ask, O oh God, may this be a time and in our nation, even in the whole of Europe, Lord God, and the world, let this be a time when your church is holding out the real saviour. And this deep conviction that only the Holy Spirit can truly bring would change many lives when they hear simple words shared about a saviour who died for them and rose again. And Father, we pray for the fruitfulness of your church right across the world to become more conspicuous, more abundant, more glorious, more joyful as people come to you. Help us to encourage one another. Help us not fixate on the troubles and the trials. Help us not give way to fear, but help us to see that our God is on the move. He is building his kingdom and we get to be a part of it. Thank you, Lord. Amen.